Welcome to The Case from Israel, a new podcast on Israeli law and democracy from the Israel Law and Liberty Forum. Together, we're going to delve deeply into Israel's political and legal ideas, get acquainted with the major figures who have shaped our society, and share perspectives on the biggest debates facing this incredible little country as it continues to shape its very democracy after 75 years. Join this new discussion on Israel's past, its present, and most especially, a vision for a vibrant and flourishing future rooted in shared values and a mutual commitment to each other. Let's work together to make the case. Podcast in session. My name is Elena Maizel, and I'm a co-founder and executive director of the Forum, a project of the Tikva Fund dedicated to cultivating debate and conservative legal leadership within Israel's immensely influential legal profession. With me are two excellent co-hosts and interlocutors, legal scholars Yonatan Green and Shimon Ataf, whom we'll meet in a moment. This podcast focuses on bringing new depth to the discussion on Israeli law, but it's got a little bit of everything in it. Some episodes will cover historical or philosophical issues in law, some will be conversations and others debate. What's important is that we offer deeper insight into an incredibly formative period for the state of Israel and bring to light different perspectives and richer discussion on the questions shaping the future of the Jewish state. So let's get introduced before we dive in. Um, Johnny, talk to us. Hi, everybody. Nice to meet you. I'm uh, Yonatan Green, or Johnny, uh, born and raised in Israel. I'm an Israeli attorney, though I uh, do have a license in the state of New York as well. Uh, I'm an incoming fellow at the Center for the Constitution at uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I'm a co-founder and former executive director of the Israel Law and Liberty uh, Forum. Um, and I've also written on these issues uh, in the past and have worked also in the uh, technology industry in various management roles. That's me. Good to have you. Shimon? Hi, everybody. Um, I am also born and raised in Israel. Um, I am currently working as the legal advisor to the, uh, to the Knesset's Constitution Law and Justice uh, uh, Chair of the Constitution Law and Justice Committee in the Knesset. Um, I worked in the past, in, uh, I clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Yusuf Elon, and I am going to start my doctoral program at Columbia Law School in about a month. All right. It's going to be a great conversation. So let's dive right in. Anyone following the news on Israel this year has seen coverage of Israeli judicial reform suddenly overtake the headlines and seemingly turn major parts of Israeli society on their head. I want our first few episodes to focus on giving the audience tools to really understand what's happening here and to contribute productively to a discussion, which, to be frank, seems to have gotten bogged down in partisan rhetoric and clueless or even biased journalistic reporting. We're going to start by giving an overview in the next few episodes of the way that the Israeli law and politics work, uh, which is something that I've seen few good resources on, even in Hebrew. Uh, today, we're going to focus on Israel's government structure, the original relationship between its court and elected branches, and maybe why we don't have a written constitution. Or do we? The story starts before the founding of the state, and it hasn't stopped since. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Johnny, and let's try to get a little bit of background on Israel, or even pre-state Israel, uh, under the British mandate. Uh, give us some history, some insight into the culture, some insight into the political institutions that exist, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I think one of the first things really to understand about Israel and its legal or governmental history um, is exactly that, it's, it, its background with the British mandate from two separate directions. One is sort of the complexity or sort of convoluted nature of Israel's 
founding because it didn't have this Federalist, uh, Federalist Papers moment. It didn't have this constitutional uh, convention uh, uh, where all the issues were sort of thought out in a methodical way, where the best minds apply their knowledge and their experience and issues of government, uh, and where they put together this the, the, this uh, ideal or optimal form of government which they thought was a good idea. Uh, they had all this baggage which they which they started out with. So. Uh, indeed, I think the main component uh, component of that baggage would be the British mandate. As we know, the uh, Israel or the previously the uh, uh, British mandate for Palestine uh, was the way in which uh, the British Empire administered uh, this particular area pre-state um, pre-state Israel. Um, there are two things to keep in mind, I think, about the sort of pre-state governmental institutions uh, um, in the British mandate. One was that the Israeli or the Jewish population in Mandate Palestine had a large degree of autonomy, and they already had a whole bunch of functioning institutions. So they were already functioning as a semi-autonomous, even semi-democratic sort of state where they had uh, various forms of elections, sort of different factions and parties. Um, this was the Yishuv. The Yishuv, right, yeah. the Jewish the Jewish settlement, the Jewish uh, uh, population uh, under the British mandate. Um, on the one hand, the British mandate brought with it, broadly speaking, English or British principles of government, of law, um, of the common law, and other uh, uh, elements of that sort of particular uh, tradition of government and law, and we can go into many, many examples. But broadly, broadly speaking, Mandate Palestine was a semi-common law jurisdiction. However, and I'm sure we'll get to this a little bit later as well, it had all these different anomalies. Part of it had to do with the sort of semi-colonial nature of the mandate in the sense that the English did not implement many of the rules that they usually would have implemented were, were, were this England. In some sense, we can get to some examples. One might be sort of the Supreme Court and the way that it was made up and the way that judges were appointed to the Supreme Court at the time, which was a sort of uh, administrative court uh, to challenge governmental decisions. And there was a sort of appeals process from the pre-state uh, uh, Supreme Court to the Privy Council uh, in England. Um, but also, the mandate brought along with it all sorts of other previous baggage in terms of the governmental and legal system from the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire, in turn, incorporated all kinds of legal mechanisms from um, the civil or continental legal tradition. Um, so that created a sort of hodgepodge, right? A, a sort of mix of all kinds of different legal elements which came into um, Israel. So I'm sure we can get into a little bit more detail, but I think that's a sort of a broad overview. Then the final thing, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Shimon in just one moment. Of course, when we get to the end of the British mandate, right, we get to this seminal moment in which the British mandate ends, um, the state of Israel is announced and uh, or, or, or established or founded, and Israel starts sort of chugging along. Uh, this is at the height of a war. This is at the height of a major existential war um, with many, many, obviously, complexities. And the least or the last thing that was uh, on people's minds or that really had the public or even the governmental attention was forming, lasting, smart, durable, uh, justified uh, um, mechanisms and institutions of government. The first thing that was on their mind was surviving a war and putting together whatever worked and and just steaming, steaming ahead. Um, with that note, I'll pass it on to Shimon. Yeah, so um, I'll just add to that. I'll, I'll continue from the point where you stopped. Um, when Israel was founded, the Declaration of Independence of Israel basically states that the Knesset, or not the Knesset, that some kind of entity, of governmental entity, that's going to be the con constitutional assembly or something like that, the constituent assembly, will establish a constitution for Israel, will discuss, debate, and establish a constitution 
for Israel. That is stated in the Declaration of Independence itself. In the end, what happened is that for all the reasons we don't have a constitution until, until this day, they couldn't agree on anything. And as you said, they were in the middle of a war, the independence war. Um, no one really had the patience and the time and the mindset to really go into all these discussions and arguments and disagreements between the different factions of the Jewish community at the time of the establishment of Israel. So they just decided to wait with it. So I think one of the things to mention is there's war, but there's also massive immigration, right? In the first three years, I believe, of Israel's existence, population here doubles. And you have uh, massive cultural clashes between more secular, more liberalized, more European Jews who end up setting up a lot of our institutions and did so even before the founding of the state, including our universities and so on, okay? And uh, Jews who are coming from the Arab, Arab lands. It's not something that people understand outside, really. Like, they're reading it now, but they don't get it. So I think it's an important component. And I think also another point that you should add to that is the fact that even among the people who lived here before the massive immigration that happened after Israel was established, they were clashing among themselves all the time. You had different factions, more more religious, more secular. Um, of course, you had the, the Arab community in Israel was completely um, considered an enemy at the time. They were, they were not a part of anything that the Jewish state in the beginning was trying to do. And all these things brought uh, some kind of an understanding that we can't, we can't establish anything permanent right now. We can't agree on something that everywhere else would be called a constitution. So what they did was just continue with you know, the, the problematic status of the, of the legal affairs they had at the time. They, they continued the Supreme Court as it was. They continued. They established the Knesset as a parliamentary system. And they just decided that having a constitution now, writing constitution now and debating over it would just, it would provide for problems that they couldn't really, couldn't deal with at the time. They let didn't me, have the resources to deal with or the time. So let me, let me try to um, go a bit more into the details on that, because I think that there were probably um, some specific dividing lines, right? Some people thought the Constitution was a good idea. Some people thought that, on principle, the Constitution was a bad idea. Like ben Gulion, for instance. Ben, exactly. So you're gonna you're gonna help us um, explore that a bit more. And then, once you get past the question of whether a Constitution is a good idea at all, there were some specific um, conflicts that arose that I think are still still with us today, uh, and they bear mention because it it helps us understand what we continue to contend with, right, almost eight decades later. So uh, was a constitution a good idea, a bad idea? How did the parties line up? Why? So thinking about the background of uh, there, you know, we tend again to look retroactively at these questions and say, oh, well, what was the conversation about the constitution? This ties in directly with what I was saying earlier because we inherited the British system for all intents and purposes. We were a common law jurisdiction, again, with all sorts of changes and differences, which we can, again, we can 
delve a little bit deeper, another thing, come to, thing that comes to mind is that Israel has no jury trials, among other things. I suspect that we're possibly the only developed common law country which does not have jury trials, and that's an interesting point uh, to itself. And, and the reasons for that were very clear. The British mandate did not want the locals, uh, 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 right, the uh, the natives, the unwashed locals uh, um, uh, making those kind of uh, legal decisions. Um, so as a society, especially as a legal society, a political society that inherited British legal and, and uh, thought and uh, British governmental thought, the idea of a constitution was by no means a given. There was no particular reason to assume that Israel should ha- ought to have a constitution. It, it did not um, derive automatically uh, our primary sort of inspiration, not just our inspiration, our actual, you know, the mechanisms of government that we inherited uh, were directly uh, uh, born of the British system of government. And of course, England, both then and now, did not have a written constitution, a codified constitution, a legal constitution. We can talk more about that terminology later. Um, so that's one point, meaning just the, the very notion that Israel was sort of inevitably, inevitably you know, sort of w- 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 leaning towards the constitution is by no means um, uh, a given. Another element to consider, which is sort of on the opposite side, is that I, I mentioned sort of Israel's background at, uh, within the mandate and its English or British legal heritage, as well as the other sort of the Ottoman various, uh, you know, legacies or various um, vestiges of Ottoman Empire that we um, inherited. Another key element which runs sort of contrary to that trend is that the legal elite of Israel, sort of the top legal brass at Israel, at its founding and also quite a, a bit before that, were mostly, for the most part, European trained. They were German, they were Austrian, some of them were French, but the vast majority were really German um, and Austrian. And they were steeped in the European, in the continental legal tradition. And that also led to all kinds of different um, contradictions, all kinds of different sort of tensions within the legal world, but of course not just within the legal world, but within the way in which the entire Israeli system was set up. And if we look, and we, we don't have to do this right now, but if we look at the first Supreme Court justices and the first justice ministers and the first uh, um, legal counsel to the government and all these different roles, they were all filled by German-educated uh, uh, jurists um, who came from a very different background and a very different set of ideas about law and about government than the institutions, than sort of the mechanisms that we inherited from the British. And that also, I think, played a very, very significant uh, role. I'll hand it over to Shimon, and then we can jump back into what happened with the, with the well, Constitution. I'll just, I'll just emphasize your point. It's one of um, the first ones that former Minister of Justice and former uh, Dean of Tel Aviv University Law School and Israel Prize winner Daniel Friedman makes in his book, The Purse and the Sword, which is perhaps the best constitutional history of Israel uh, that exists, and it, it's also available in English uh, for a hefty sum. Um, and he mentions, I think, that the m- more revolutionary generation, kind of where we got to in the 80s and the 90s, was the first generation of judges and legal professionals who had really been educated exclusively in Israel, almost, um, and that that changed the jargon and the ideas that they applied to the legal system. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll clarify also just about the, Professor Friedman's point there. He's, he, his point was also that the new generation, of course, later we'll get to the revolutionary era, the 80s, et cetera, uh, onwards, not just that it, not just that they were educated in, in Israel, but rather they didn't have the classical legal education in the way that even 
the the Israeli jurists who were not educated in Germany or Europe. They were they were educated in Israel, but under a very British, very English, right. clearly common law sort of classic common law uh, mindset, classic common law system. And indeed, we saw a sort of generational shift when there was a new generation of Israeli jurists who, in fact, did not have that background. They weren't educated in none of the sort of classical ideas or institutions that you would have in Europe or in England. Shimon. So I would add to that another another research that came out about 20 years ago that you can see that in the Supreme Court cases, they refer to English precedents for, for about 30 years or so, or a little bit more than that. So in the beginning of... of since the beginning of the establishment of Israel until until basically when Barack came into the picture, most of the cases, most of the, I would say that in the beginning it was most because they didn't even have case law to refer to. But even after that, for, for decades, they used to refer to cases from the English system, literally from the English system. They would, they would refer to cases, to case law, to English case law as basis for legal decisions in the Israeli Supreme Court. And and later on, you can see how the shift, there's, in the beginning, there's a shift to US kind of law when they refer to outside law. And at some point that completely stops. Um, and I think that today you can, it's very rare to find a justice referring to anything outside of, Israel, of Israeli law. I wanna to add to that, it's a wonderful point um, that the Supreme Court initially heavily relied on, on English precedents, whether as sort of direct law or simply as inspiration or a writer as a sort of learned sources. And uh, right, there's that research, who is it? What's his name, the professor that did it? Um, Yoram Shachar, right? Is it Professor Yoram Shachar? Yeah, yeah, it's Yoram Shachar and another guy. So P- Professor Yoram Shachar had this uh, fantastic research. But another point to make is that not just that it was the, a question of inspiration or precedent, it was in fact, and Shimon, you can correct me on the details, that was the law, meaning you had right? and I'll say it, I'll say it in, uh, in English, section 46 to, uh, you know, the decree of the king, I, I, it's a poor translation, I'm sure there's a proclamation, I'm sure there's a correct way to say it. Uh, uh, it was Israeli law, that if you did, if you had a lacune, if you did not have a clear answer in law, you absolutely went to common law um, as a legal source. And this is important to understand, again, and, and now we'll finally go ahead a little bit it, to what actually happened it, with the founding of the state. I would say it's a detail that helps us understand how important the English system, the English legal system, how important it was for the Israeli legal system. It's just as, as an anecdote. But precisely. This is the, the, the Israeli legal culture in terms of law and government was essentially a culture of English law and English system of government, uh, even though there were many uh, um, differences and, uh, and uh, like I said, other, other, other elements inherited from elsewhere. Um, but that just illustri- illustrates that, or, or how strong that connection was, that, that yeah. the common law was a legitimate, bona fide source of law if, uh, if you had a, a lacunae. Okay, so I think before we um, go back to the question of, of what some of the central dividing lines were when, when there was, in fact, an attempt to put together a constitution. I think it, it bears mention, um, in addition to the, the legal historical context, that there was um, <laughs> a, lot, a lot happening. Obviously, you've mentioned the war. There's the war within Israel. There uh, was at the Declaration of Independence also um, a war on, on the borders. 
but this is also happening in the years following the Holocaust. There's massive immigration into uh, in fact, Israel. It, there was attempted massive immigration into mandatory Palestine. Um, and uh, you're also getting many refugee populations, Jewish refugee populations coming in from the Middle East and the Arab world. So there's this massive population boom. I think within the first three years of Israel, the population here doubled. Uh, and with it, there's an intense culture clash. You have the established, more established European, um, more Ashkenazi, often more secularized, often um, more, more even left-wing in the European sense. So that's, that's the establishment um, Pre pre founding more more left wing they were complete socialists. I'm trying I'm trying to be somewhat moderate, but you are correct. There were there were socialists. There were even uh, some of them communists, Marxists. Yes, yes. Um, and that's that's really the culture that ends up building a lot of the social and political institutions here in practice uh, that are are with us even today. They through their their sweat and investment and and blood. Um, built the universities and and the banks and uh, the theaters and certainly the national labor unions, which Israel, I think, may have the distinction of having a national labor union before it has a state. Um, and then with them, you have uh, Jews coming in from, from Arab uh, lands, and they reflect a much more Middle Eastern culture, very often a much more traditionalist culture, certainly not educated um, in in Western institutions, uh, very large families, um, and a different, a different way of viewing national and religious and cultural priorities. And suddenly everybody has to get along under one, one roof in a very short period of time under crisis. And that's really the context in which all of the rest of this, I think, happens. And it must be understood because um, it's it's the umbrella under which we have this discussion of constitution, good idea, bad idea, or to what extent can we reach productive compromises on issues of conflict. Now, I want to move to those issues of, of conflict. Uh, what were the things that, that were sticking points for people when they were actually trying to put together a constitution? And for that matter, once we've talked about that, let's also discuss again why a constitution was a good or bad idea, at least in principle, before getting to how it worked out. So let's start from the basics. Everyone understands that a constitution or the, the idea of a written constitution that establishes a pyramid of norms um, is, is a, a way of achieving some kind of a baseline that everyone can agree on. Um, the rules of the game, as they say, those are the rules that we all abide by. Those are the rules that are very difficult to change. And it gives us, um, the idea of a constitution is to give a society the ability to come together around core principles that everyone agrees you shouldn't, you shouldn't use, you shouldn't change, or if you want to change them, you need to change. You need to use very difficult mechanisms. And when you have that in place, usually um, in places where it was done well, it gives the country a consistent, um, stable, kind of legal system where there's um, human rights, of course, are protected and the core established, established um, uh, establishments 
establishment of the state is also protected. The, the different um, institutions of government are protected from um, fast and or and, um, unthought unthoughtful changes. Those are basically the ideas behind a written constitution. And what happened, and I think this is also something I'll go back just for a second to the Declaration of Independence of Israel. People don't understand that it wasn't really well thought out. It was just, it's, I think it took them three days to write it down. It was in the middle of the war. It was one guy writing this text. No one really agreed on it. No one cared what exactly it meant. There, was some, there were some arguments about this word or that, but in the end, the, the idea was that we all, they all came together, and some of them literally said this. They wrote it down when they, wrote, when they signed on the, the Declaration of Independence. They signed, we're signing because we want to be a part. We understand that this is a time of crisis, and we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be out. We don't want to sabotage the efforts of the state, of the new state of Israel from being established. But we don't agree, we don't agree with what's written here. And they literally said this, and they wrote this when they, they signed under protest. Could you, Many of these. Could you go into some of what's written there? What was controversial? So one of the things that was controversial is um, what we call the, 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 the rock of Israel. So there was, there was a discussion of whether to mention God in the Declaration of Independence of the Jewish state. And the secular leaders were very much against it. And the religious leaders were very much for it. And they said, and everyone was very upset about the whole thing. And it was, a, some say it was a, a real uh, crisis at the time. And what they decided upon in the end was just using the rock of Israel. So we say, some could yeah. understand it to be, um, you know, a reference to God. And some could say, well, it can be a reference to anything. At least the name of God was not mentioned um, in any clear terms. But that's just one. And I think that represents one of the core um, disagreements that is, that, that is a, part of what, a part of Israeli society since the beginning. There's a very strong secular anti-religious sentiment on the one hand, and then you have very strong religious factions on the other. And these two factions needed to get along and work together to create and establish Israel. So I'll jump in um, to build on what you both said. First of all, I'm sure we'll talk more about the Declaration of Independence because that's sort of an ongoing debate about its status and its background and the way it was put together. There's a wonderful book in English that I'll recommend called Israel's Declaration of Independence. came out very recently by uh, Neil uh, Rogachevsky and uh, Dov Ziegler, um, mm -hmm. probably one of the only English language uh, sort of comprehensive books about the Declaration of Independence. But I think, this, the, yes, in Israeli education, there's a sort of mythical tale, right? This mythical fable, which is which is true about, about the Rock of Israel in this particular debate. But I think that belies the first point that Shimon was making, which is the more important one, which was this was not a deliberative process, meaning there was no uh, what you could imagine as some, some kind of constitutional assembly discussing, right, the, 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 the articulation and the, and the, uh, the drafting of the, of, the, um, of the Declaration of Independence. Um, I'll get into the technical side first, and then I'll say something about, then we'll move forward into the constitution making of Israel and sort of what what lay at its at its basis, so as Elena referred to as well, one of the things that the and as Shimon I think referred to as well, one of the things that the Constitution sorry that the Declaration of Independence stipulates is that by date such and such I think it was by October of nineteen forty 
eight, I think it was supposed 29th. to be. May, right? By October 29th. No. Right. It, they, 19, it says November 29th. We, we declare that with effect from the moment of the termination of the mandate being tonight, the eve of Sabbath, the 6th of ER, uh, oh, 5708, oh, yeah, yeah. 15th of May, 1948, until the establishment of the elected regular authorities of the state in accordance with the Constitution, which shall be adopted by the elected constituent assembly not later than the 1st of October, 1948. Um, the People's Council, right, which was the so, legislative body, then acts a... So this ties whatever. into a few things, Go you know, on. I mentioned, again, just to give the full sort of, I'll call it the, the technical context. So unusually, I guess, for some nascent states, Israel had these institutions, meaning, again, you had the you had these various Zionist, uh, uh, pseudo-state-type institutions, pseudo-governmental institutions, which had a measure of representation of the Israeli issue, which had... so you, So these kind of... Um, very naturally glided into the role of governmental institutions themselves. One of those indeed became the Constituent Assembly, which was this assembly, which was uh, th- th- there was an election held in order to for for uh, you know the new citizens of Israel to appoint representatives, and they were supposed to, according to the Declaration of Independence, they were supposed to draft and ratify a constitution by October first of nineteen. 19- 48, a fairly tight deadline, by the way. That just kind of shows the way that they were thinking. I mean, if you think about other constitutions that typically take years and years and years to put together in terms of the entire process, not just the drafting and the discussion, the deliberation, the ratification, et cetera, it takes years. Here they envisioned a process of, of, of grossly sort of four or five months, right, until they actually, right from beginning to end. And to, um, add, to, and to add to that, it, in the end, it didn't happen because and of, course, of the war. And of course, it didn't happen. It was postponed, and then the elections were postponed, and the whole thing just didn't work out the way they intended it to. So, and this is, and now we're getting sort of into the thick of things. Shimon gave an introduction to write what, what is a constitution? What, 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 why do we have a constitution? Um, at base, at the very, very, very base, the, the very notion of, const- of a constitution assumes a certain broad consensus about some really big questions, right? It assumes that the public agrees uh, at some level of majority, which isn't just a simple absolute majority, but it's a, uni- a larger majority, right? The public agrees on some really, really basic values, on some really important questions uh, um, of, of the definition of the state, of core values, of the way the government works, etc. And one of the points, I think one of the key points to make about constitution making in Israel, what actually happened and what happened later, and this is a point made by, I think, uh, Dr. Shuki Segev in a wonderful paper, which is unfortunately is in Hebrew, so you can't read it, but it's 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 about it's titled something like uh, "On the Merits of the Decision Not to Decide," right? And it's about this idea that some countries are not well suited at a given point in time to a constitution. So uh, this is adding to what I said earlier about being part of a, a British system, a British tradition, where it was by no means a given that we were even supposed to have a constitution. Um, Israel was not necessarily in a situation which was fitting, which where it was prepared uh, um, to have a constitution. This ties in directly to what Elena was saying. You have a country which basically doubled its size within a few years. Not just doubled its size, but doubled its size um, in waves of immigration uh, who were culturally and socially radically different from a large amount of people who were already there. You had already, and we didn't even get into the issues of the ultra-Orthodox, the religious Zionist parties, meaning the, the, the Hapoel Mizrahi and the other sort of uh, uh, European religious segments of the Zionist uh, uh, parties. And of course, then we had also the Arab citizens um, of Israel. So you had this mix 
which I think was fairly unusual for new countries. I mean, if you think of new established democracies, usually they're old countries, right? If you have a country that throws off the yoke of tyranny, right, or post-imperial countries and the, uh, the spring of nations, etc., these are established, very ancient countries often, right? You think of Poland, right, when Poland became a democracy in various stages, had various stages of institutions, but Poland has been around for a thousand years uh, or more. So... In that sense, of course, the Jewish nation is very ancient. The Jewish people are very ancient. But as a state, as a country, as a sort of homogenous sort of group of, of a population occupying one particular area, it was very, 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 very new with massive, drastic, radical differences between people, socially, culturally, not to mention, of course, the way they viewed government. So also in this sense, and this, I think, brings us to the question of, of, of putting together a constitution, there is a huge question mark over the very desirability, the very advisability of whether Israel was ready, Israel, whether Israel should have had, be, even been trying to have a constitution at the first place at government. And that brings us to, I guess I'll call it the Harari decision, that brings us to the, the, the first stage of, of what happens next, what happens when, when we didn't manage. So, um, so picking up on what you've just said, Johnny, can we, can we talk for a moment about, let's say, what David Ben-Gurion has written about, or had written about, the concept of a constitution. He was one of the key opponents, if I recall. So th there's, a research, there's a research that just came out by uh, Shani Schnitzel. I would like to give her the credit for that. And she, she wrote, she researched this exact issue in, extensively, and she came to the conclusion that the, one of the reasons Ben-Gurion opposed, opposed the idea of a constitution was very practical, and it had to do with the fact that he was the king at the time. He had a majority in the Knesset, and all the, the entire political um, setting of the of, uh, in the beginning of Israel's existence was basically under his rule. And the idea of a constitution that would give the justices of the Supreme Court at the time power over things that he wanted to do in Israel through the Knesset was just appalling to him. So in a sense, of course, there was, a, there was also a, a more deep doctrinal disagreement about the idea of a constitution for, for a state like Israel. But not only that, it was also just a practical matter, a simple, small matter, more, I would say more um, cynical matter, that Ben-Gurion was just the guy in power. And the idea of establishing a constitution at the time was for him losing power that he thought he should have. So I want to push back on that a little bit. And I'll talk about Bigger, and I just want to give a spoiler, right? In case any of our listeners are um, are in suspense, uh, I hope everybody knows that um, Israel did not end up with a constitution uh, immediately after its founding. I think we've made that clear, but just to just to be perfectly clear, so um, you know it, it, these discussions and deliberations after the Declaration of Independence uh, did not bear fruit, and that's the the, the sort of critical point. But indeed, as as Shimon says, there were these discussions, meaning it's not that. Israel simply, um, uh, you know, forgot about it. It's not as if the political institutions simply, you know, were dealing with other things. The political institutions in Israel were engaged in a very serious debate about whether they wanted a constitution or not. And in the framework, in the context of that debate, Ben-Gurion himself, David Ben-Gurion, the uh, first prime minister of Israel, and, you know, many consider the sort of the founding father of the state of Israel um, in many senses, David Ben-Gurion articulated some very sound, very principled, very um, forceful opinions against a written constitution. And again, I think sort of looking back at some of these 
um, arguments. By the way, you can read these in English also in Mosaic, if you, uh, the online Mosaic magazine, if you look for Ben Gurion and the Constitution, um, and also elsewhere. But it, th that's a wonderful sort of collection of the, th the things that he said in, um, uh, in English uh, about a Constitution. Um, in the in the context of this debate, Ben Gurion had all these uh, points about whether or not or why Israel should not have a constitution, and he makes some very 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 good, salient, strong points. Now, I think it's tempting, a little bit too tempting, two things. One is to look back and be unconvinced by generally to be just generally unconvinced by some of the typical points that he makes. But you have to sort of get into the mindset of 1948. Remember, today we're in an era where constitu you know constitutionalism is almost a given, where something like 80 or 90 percent of democracies around the world have written constitutions, where it's almost obvious that a functioning democracy ought to have a constitution. This was clearly not the case in 1948, and it was a genuine question. A lot of these questions, a lot of these arguments that Ben Gurion is making, which someone today might be reading and say, well, you know, that, that issue has been resolved, right? These are the clear issues, um, and, and then they might, you know, uh, be unpersuaded by those arguments. These were arguments that were conversations that were being had all over the world. And it was, again, by no means a given, not just for Israel in its context as a British-inspired system, but also elsewhere. It was by, by no means a given or obvious that Israel needed a constitution. I think it's the other point that I wanted to make is that I think it's tempting, as also Shanish Nitzer does in, in her research, but also elsewhere, it's tempting to... Um, dismiss Ben-Gurion's principled arguments against the Constitution because of the obvious limitations that a Constitution would impose on Ben-Gurion's power. Meaning, yes, of course, Ben-Gurion, as an extremely powerful politician uh, with sort of near-absolute command of Israel's democratic institutions, meaning they were democratic, but he had such a clear majority, electoral majority, he had such a clear mandate within the governing institutions to do basically as he pleased. Um, you know, certainly not justified to call him a tyrant, but also, certainly, he had an enormous amount of power, uh, considering he was the head of a, a democratically elected uh, government. So, obviously, uh, a constitution would have imposed limits to those powers. However, I think that it's a bit too easy of an excuse to dismiss his very principled arguments on that level. And this ties into the things that we were discussing before. Not only were his argu did his arguments relate to, and, and of course, I think his arguments did reflect, his arguments did reflect the way many, many people, both in the public and in Israel's political and legal, legal establishment felt. Not only did he have principled arguments uh, generally about the drawbacks of a constitution, about, you know, and he says, he has wonderful quotes where he said, you know, why should what this Knesset today choose, why should that bind a future Knesset, right? Why should we think that the electorate today that makes this constitution or whatever it is, is wiser than the electorate two, two generations down, right? Why should what we think right now limit what uh, the the electorate says two It's almost just one second. It's almost like Thomas Jefferson talking about the dead hand of the past, right? Uh, uh, right, limiting uh, what the uh, uh, what the future can do. But also his and the, this is the last point I'm going to make about this. Ben Gurion's objections reflect directly what we've been talking about: that the divisions in Israeli society, the divisions, the 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 very unusual nature of the new Israeli society with all these factions who deeply disagreed on just about everything. Uh, um, in, in that kind of context, the consti a, any constitution almost, but a constitution would be a liability. It would not be an asset. It would be to the detriment of society, to the detriment of stability, uh, to the detriment of, of uh, the uh, uh, compromise and getting along and coalition building that you really needed in that kind of context. Yeah, so that's, that's the point I was trying to make. Um, I wasn't trying to say that Ben Gurion's arguments against the constitution weren't genuine to some extent. It was just giving some context as to 
some of the motives, I would say, that might have pushed Ben Gurion to support that kind of those kind of arguments. But I would I, I completely agree with your last uh, last point, and I think that's the most important point we should think about when we talk about the the beginning of Israel and why a constitution was not established. Uh, establishing a constitution for the state of Israel at the time was considered to be um, um, something that could endanger the existence of Israel. The the idea of the founding fathers of Israel, the, the Ben Gurion and his friends, when they what they had in mind was first of all, we are a very small state, we're just starting. We don't really have a, a, we ha- we had an army and we had. We started to have uh, um, governmental institutions, but they, they really, they were thinking, their mi- the, the entire mindset of the time, at the time was, we just need to survive. Because, and we might not. That was the mindset. We were just, six million Jews were just murdered in Europe. And, and their mindset was, okay, you know, that's, that, that's where we are at the time, right now. And that might happen again. Everyone was completely traumatized by the Holocaust. And they had this mindset of, first, we need to survive, to have an army, to be strong, to, to some, somehow to maintain the existence of this state. And, and, and this is not the time to start rocking the boat. That was the mindset. I think it's also worth noting, uh, given the discourse on, on legal reform today, uh, that Ben-Gurion had a particularly positive view of majority rule. Now, part of that I think relates to the way in which parliamentary democracy is is structured um, without a constitution, and it's something we're going to get uh, more into. I'm not sure if it's in this episode, but certainly in the next. Um, but he has a he has an interesting quote in one of his key speeches on this. Uh, he goes uh, speaking about the majority. He goes better that they pass a bad law than that a minority takes over. For the people will not accept this. Even the rule of the majority is not so quickly accepted among us. The rule of a minority, this won't be accepted. There isn't any moral or logical justification for it. And he ties that into um, the implications of, of, a, of a written constitution for Israel. And that mindset, uh, I think one could can certainly argue with it. And it didn't, it didn't end up winning out, it didn't end up winning out um, entirely uh, within, within the state of Israel, but it was, it was considered appropriate, legitimate. Um, this is, of course, one of the, the fathers of Israel. Uh, and it's something that's continued to to resound uh, to, uh, to resonate uh, within Israeli culture for a long time. So um, it's it's worth mentioning. I think that's an excellent point, and I I love that quote that you just brought, Elena, also because it demonstrates, and, and I'll also tie it into what Shimon said about survival. It demonstrates Ben Gurion's view, and, and again, I think shared by many others about the very fragile nature, not just of the Israeli state. But of these of, of Israeli democracy, and this is another point which, which we haven't really covered. But this the very notion that Israel transitioned into a democracy when it was found. And there, there's a lot of writing and a lot of background on that and how that came to be and the Zion, you know, the, the inherent democratic nature of the Zionist institutions all the way back to the very first Zionist convention of 1897. And you can go further back into the way Jew, you know, autonomous Jewish rule in various parts of Europe and and the Middle East, etc. But skipping all that background, um, it was by no means a given that Israel even became a democracy. And one of Ben-Gurion's points here, and, and this ties in both to the fragility and, and, and survivability, uh, people tend to think, when we talk about survival, people tend to think Israel's fighting a war, and they're being attacked on all directions, and they're thinking about a second Holocaust, and as far as they're concerned, they're about to be wiped out by seven Arab armies, and that's what they're dealing with. Yes, that's true, but that's not the only type of survival 
that Ben-Gurion and others are thinking of. They're thinking of survival of this particular Israeli democracy, of this particular Israeli society. And one of Ben-Gurion's arguments is that as Israeli democracy is fragile, what would break that fragility is precisely the rigid notion of a constitution. It is precisely that hard straitjacket of a constitution, which is the worst thing right now for Israeli society and for Israeli democracy, for this Israeli, for, for, for this idea that uh, of, of self-government and self-rule. And I th so I think those two things tie in very, very nicely that, that the survival of Israel as a democracy is conditioned, among other things, on mm -hmm. not having that kind of hard constitution. I completely agree with that. So let me finish our first ever episode with a question um, that sets us up okay, to go into the Harari resolution at the open of the next episode. And that's to go back and just make sure that we, we finish our first discussion with an understanding of some of the key legal and cultural controversies, right? We've talked now about whether a constitution is a good idea or a bad idea. Fine. Assuming it was a good idea, what were some of the breaking points right, that really prevented it from happening, the different interest groups that really prevented it from happening. Because again, those, those things are still live controversies within the state of Israel, and they're having incredible impact now. So let's just go back and remember how they, how they start. I kind, of hear, I kind of want to hear what you have on your mind about that, because to me at least, um, it's not so much as any particular interest group preventing a constitution because I think that's a no, story. Not, which, not yeah. preventing. The breaking points. Meaning, for instance, um, religion and state. The question to which equality should be enshrined in, in law and what that means for the Jewish character of the state. I just, I want you to explain a bit more what, to... What was that? I don't know. Yeah, was yeah, equality yeah. a okay. major question? So I'm going to turn this, I'm gonna turn this, this, I don't this situation it, to... I don't think anyone talked on. about equality as such. I think that's a very uh, much later development. The core issue was the, the, the relationship between religion and the rabbinical world and um, the more religious idea of, of, of Judaism to begin with for a Jewish state. So there was a very strong and large um, community within... Um, Israeli society at the beginning, at the beginning of the of the establishment of Israel, who understood the idea of a Jewish state to be a state that is ruled by the Jewish uh, halacha, the Jewish Torah. At least some of them were strong uh, proponents of that idea, and of course the secular um, leaders who were a part of the establishment of Israel were strongly opposed to that idea. Of course, they wanted a secular state, and. And this is also important, I think, to to mention that in the end they came to some, in the end they came to some kind of a of, of an agreement to of a status quo. And this is also something that I think we we can't ignore when we talk about these issues. Um, um, since the beginning of Israel, at some point they came to the conclusion that okay, these are these are these are things that we can't agree on, and we can't really we can't solve at the at the moment. So we're just going to leave things as they are. And at the time, some religious components of, um, of the mandatory system at the, um, before Israel was established were incorporated into the legal law, and, and some were left out. Um, and they just, the idea was, let's leave everything as it is. Let's not touch anything. That was a very strong core idea of principle that, that the Israeli, Israeli society and legal system at the time um, followed, the idea of the status quo. 
And that meant that some things on some places are going to be um, shut down on Shabbos on the on the on the Jewish Sabbath, and um, the rabbinical affiliation with family law, the the whole idea that there is a an entire branch of law that is that is based on the Jewish halacha, that is still in place until this day. So these are also some of the issues that were at the core disagreements between the different factions um, at the establishment of Israel. So Shimon, I'm just going to build on, on what you said. Uh, yes, I think status quo is a wonderful example of uh, the sort of frozen issue of relations of religion, religion and state, right? And uh, status quo is sort of a code word for, in Israel. It doesn't just mean status quo. It means the specific status quo of a church and state in Israel as it was at the time of the founding of the state. And it's just all these issues that nobody's willing to touch. They're just too controversial and not enough agreement. Um, so for instance, um, public transportation is a big deal. Uh, the cities that had public transportation on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, at the start of the country retained that, and the cities that did not, including Tel Aviv, which is a highly secular population, uh, do not have public transportation on Shabbat, for instance. It, it, public transportation is a wonderful example. And there are many others that have to do with food and kashrut, that have to do with the, the, the rabbinical authorities, that have to do with the clerical courts. There are 13 clerical courts in Israel, as there are 13 recognized uh, religions and denominations in Israel. However, the point that I'm trying to make is that the lack of a constitution and the failure, so to speak, right, or the lack of success in building a constitution is about the lack of a broad consensus on, on a whole range of issues. And absolutely, Shimon, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You're absolutely correct that, of course, religion state was one of the major blocks, one of the major div division lines um, in, in at the founding of the state of Israel. But there are so many other division lines. There are so many other differences. And instead of pointing at all the differences and saying, well, there was this and there was that, and, this, and all these things converged, right, to, to prevent having constitution, it's the opposite. It's that the basic condition of having a constitution, right? The basic condition, which is this broad consensus on a host of issues, was just not there. And I think, Shimon, earlier you mentioned this issue of the right wing, right? The the, the political right, right? Where were they? So you want to yeah, say so, something? So as, so this is, this is a, a, point, a detail that most people don't know, and that the first... The, the, the most the prominent leader of the right in Israel, the right, uh, the political right in Israel, Menachem Begin, he was the head at the time. He was the head of the Etzel, which was one of the uh, organizations, the the combating organizations against the mandatory regime um, before Israel was established, and and became later the the leader of the of the political right in Israel. And he was not. He didn't even sign the Declaration of Independence of Israel. So. At the time, you can understand that these these divisions were not were very wide, and they had to do a lot about political factions and about ideological differences that were very wide and and, and encompassed all kinds and, and all kinds of different ideologies, um, financial, uh, uh, economic ideologies, and and um, and other understandings of the Zionist project and and issues like that. I think. That what you're effectively saying, and really the reason that we have this podcast, is that the founding of Israel started in 1948, arguably goes back much, much farther, but it, it never wrapped up, and we're still, in many ways, at the very founding of the state. So I want to thank you for what's been a really productive discussion. I'm looking forward to our next episodes, and I hope that our listeners have enjoyed Podcast dismissed. Very nice.